Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing our series, The Storyline of the Bible, and now we make a significant transition as we look at Jesus and the coming of the kingdom. So let's join Dr. Neufeld today for this study. The major division in our Bible is between the Old and the New Testament. By now, you've heard me say that I don't actually like the title Old and New Testament. Now, I use them because if I didn't, I don't think very many would understand what I'm talking about. And because Old and New Testament is conventional language, well, I use it too. But I don't like the title for three reasons. First, those designations are not found in the Bible itself. The Bible nowhere refers to the first 39 books as Old Testament. And the second reason I don't like it is because it's given many the impression that the Old Testament is passé or old and therefore not relevant anymore. Now, to be truthful, there are a lot of commands in the Old Testament that New Testament believers don't do, such as eating a kosher diet, the necessity of demanding circumcision for our sons, and the sacrificing of animals in the temple. But as we will see as we go through the New Testament storyline, the reason for not requiring these things of us today is not that they're outdated, you know, like a milk carton past its due date, but that these matters have been fulfilled. More about that as we go on. A third reason I don't like the title Old and New is because I think we could use a much easier designation. I believe we should call the first 39 books the First Testament and the last 27 books the Second Testament. Just like two chapters in a book, we would not expect chapter 2 to cancel out chapter 1. Rather, we would expect chapter 2 to build on chapter 1, giving it shape and meaning and completing the plot line. And that's exactly what we find in the First and Second Testaments. Here are some examples. The First Testament is filled with puzzles that are not solved until we come to the Second Testament. One example would have to do with the mystery of the being and the nature of God. On the one hand, the Old Testament presents God as one, and yet, on some occasions, God refers to himself in the plural. Now, that mystery is solved in the New Testament, and the matter is clarified in the doctrine of the Trinity. And so the First Testament opens up our understanding of God, and the Second Testament fills in what was lacking in the picture. But there are other mysteries that need further clarification. How can Abraham's descendants become as many as the grains of sand? And how can they bless the entire earth when the story of Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, represent a small portion of the human race? The vast majority of the human race remain completely ignorant of what God was doing in that one small part of the world. How would this amazing story fill the earth? Well, the Second Testament answers what seems to be an impossible scenario. Added to that is another mystery. If Israel is only to inherit the promised land, and if the son of David is to reign all the earth, well, those two ideas seem contradictory. Well, they would seem to be contradictory until you come to the Second Testament, and then the matter is resolved. See, the reality is that Jesus, both who he is and what he came to do, is the interpretive key to understanding all 66 books that make up our Bible. See, without Jesus, the Bible would contain a fascinating but frustrating storyline, for the story would never have reached a climax or a fulfillment. But most basically, 
I have said that the story of the whole Bible is about the altogether glorious and majestic God who who was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The Second Testament, as it were, lifts the veil and reveals to us the identity of the Christ or the identity of the Messiah King. He is Jesus of Nazareth, and what occurred in his life and ministry is the most breathtaking conclusion to a story that already fascinated us. Without Jesus, the entire story would make no sense at all. Jesus becomes the central figure of the story. The covenants with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and then with David are like steps ascending to a summit. And there on the top of the hill, fulfilling the entire plot line, stands Jesus and the new covenant sealed in his blood. So where do we begin? Well, let's start where we ended off last. When the Old Testament comes to an end, a sense of expectation hangs in the air. The temple has been rebuilt, and the glory of the second temple will far outstrip the temple built by Solomon. For the Lord whom you seek will then suddenly come to his temple. And then for the next 400 years, no prophet speaks. That, of course, doesn't mean that nothing happened in those 400 years. Indeed, the years were fascinating. For when many of the prophecies in the book of Daniel came to be fulfilled, Daniel had foreseen that the Babylonian Empire, which had destroyed Jerusalem, would itself fall to the Persian Empire. He lived to see that event being fulfilled. But as Daniel looks into the future, he saw the Greek Empire defeating the Persians and then finally the rise of the Roman Empire. Furthermore, Daniel foresaw that a desperate struggle would happen for the people of Israel to maintain their identity. He foresaw an abomination that causes desolation, attempting to destroy the worship of the one true God, and he foresaw how the godly would resist and win the day. We don't have time to show how the rise of the Maccabees in Israel was a fulfillment of many of the visions of Daniel. In Jewish terms, from the period of 166 to 63 BC, the Jews managed to gain independence and for a period of slightly more than 100 years lived under their own leadership. The kingdom of David was not restored during that time, but for some period, they again saw some measure of hope for the promise of Abraham to be fulfilled. But as time went on, the leadership in Judea became increasingly corrupt. In 63 BC, the Jews voluntarily surrendered their own self-rule to the new and dominant superpower. They invited Roman authority into their own nation. What they thought might be a blessing by clearing up corruption ended up as a curse as the Romans became deeply involved both politically and also religiously. Several religious parties grew up in these 400 years. The first were the Pharisees. They were zealous for Jewish religious purity. They demanded separation from Gentiles and their idolatry, which was rampant. And they also developed what was called an oral law. From their perspective, their oral law was as authoritative as the law of Moses. The second religious party were the Sadducees. They controlled the temple priesthood and also openly cooperated with the Roman authorities. They rejected the idea of life after death and also were more willing to compromise for political ends than were the Pharisees. The third group were the Zealots, who were either freedom fighters or terrorists, depending on your definition. See, they wanted to see a violent overthrow of Roman authority. Both the Pharisees and the Zealots would have embraced the idea of a Messiah. The Sadducees would have seen the idea central to Judaism, but that it was a very problematic idea. 
It was into this world that Jesus was born. The life of Jesus can be divided into two. There are those years in which he lived in Nazareth and would have been faithful in his synagogue as well as carrying on the career of his earthly father. But everything was about to change. John the Baptist had appeared in the southern region of the Jordan, the desert region. He was baptizing Israel, demanding a ritual cleansing. This was necessary, he said, because the kingdom of God was at hand. His message was communicated with such power, and his appearance seemed deliberately arranged to make him look like Elijah of old. All faithful readers of the Old Testament knew two things. Malachi the prophet had said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. And Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah 11 verse 1, had said, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That simply meant that Isaiah believed way back in his day that one day the kingdom of David would be cut down. And like a great old tree, from that stump of that tree, a shoot would come forth. Or to put the matter plainly, from the destroyed kingdom of David would come a new king in his lineage. And when that happened, said Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All that remained was for the Messiah or the great king in David's line to come and to rule. See, the implication is plain. The entire storyline of the Bible would be fulfilled in one dramatic moment. When David's throne was reestablished, then God would reconcile the world to himself and the Bible storyline would come to a full head. And then along came John the Baptist, looking like the restoration of Elijah the prophet, telling people to repent and be purified, for the kingdom of God was at hand at this moment. And all Israel was crowding out to the Jordan to hear him preach, and they were being baptized, and they were being built into an expectation that the greatest moment in human history lay at hand. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom. Well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult. There came a time in the career of John the Baptist when he reached a crisis point in his faith. The kingdoms of this earth, from Babel to the present hour, looked like they were in no mood to give up their claim to this earth. John was thrown into prison where eventually he would be beheaded. In his confusion, 
it would have appeared at least to his way of thinking, like the kingdom of God was not making its appearance, and so he sent messengers from his prison cell to go and speak to Jesus. I'm reading Matthew 11, 2-6. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, I am sure that what Jesus was doing was genuinely confusing for John. After all, John simply preached the essence of the Old Testament storyline. The axe, he said, was at the root of the tree. The day of judgment was at hand. A great baptism of the Holy Spirit was coming when, as Isaiah had said, the earth would be full of the glory of the Lord. This was the central message of the Bible. But there would also be a baptism of fire when the chaff would be burned in the furnace and God's judgment of the wicked would end the kingdoms of men and their fierce resistance to the kingdom of God. And here was Jesus, and he was doing and saying things that only the Christ could say and do. He was even raising the dead and demonstrated his mastery over death and over nature and illness and every other thing. The curse of the fall seemed to be rolled back as he demonstrated that he was Lord and King over all. And yet, the kingdoms of men were not giving way, and the day of evil clearly was not coming to an end. See, let's examine the message of Jesus carefully. First, Jesus really did speak of the kingdom of God as a present reality. Listen to what he said, recorded in Matthew 12, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, every time he cast out demons, he was demonstrating his kingly mastery over Satan and his realm of rebellion against God. Satan had been set to flight wherever Jesus went. And this, said Jesus, is a demonstration that the kingdom of God is at hand or it's arrived. And yet at other times, when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, he spoke of it as a future realm. Listen to how he addresses the subject recorded in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 34. There he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And so here we have it at the outset, two almost contradictory things. First, the kingdom has now arrived. And second, we await its coming. There is more. See, on the one hand, it would seem that the kingdom of God is a hidden event. I'm reading Luke 17, 20 to 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, I know that in regards to that verse, there are some translations that say the kingdom of God is within you, but that's really wrong. Jesus was not telling the Pharisees to look into their hearts and discover that the kingdom of God was there all along, that some innate goodness was lurking there latently. Rather, what he was saying is that the kingdom of God had already arrived and they didn't know it. The kingdom is in your midst and you didn't recognize it was there. What he had in mind, of course, was himself. 
He was the great king. He is David's greater son. He was the rightful heir of David's ancient throne. And with his arrival, the kingdom had come. But they were blind and didn't see it. Now, how should they interpret the miracles? What accounts for this if it is not the secret arrival of the kingdom? And so we can see that Jesus taught that the kingdom was a secret hidden event. And yet, at other times, he seemed to teach the exact opposite. I'm reading here from Matthew 13, verses 40 to 43. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And so given these two realities, the presence of the kingdom and yet the anticipated arrival of the kingdom, we come back to John the Baptist's confusion. He has from the beginning believed that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the king. John believed then and still did in prison that he was sent as a forerunner preparing for Jesus the Christ to take his place on the public stage and usher in the kingdom. And yet in some ways he was doing just that. And yet, why was Jesus not purifying Israel? Why was he not overthrowing Herod, that corrupt Jerusalem priesthood, and the Romans? All those things were also a part of the Old Testament storyline. See, let's imagine for a moment that one's looking through a telescope at a set of mountain ranges far out into the distance. From that distance, one can clearly see the outline of two magnificent mountains. We'll call the one mountain the blessing of God upon the righteous. And the other mountain, well, we're going to call that one God's judgment upon the wicked. Now imagine that the prophets of old and also John the Baptist looked through a telescope into the future and saw those two mountains. But from the distance, what was not seen is that between those two mountains was a very large and expansive valley. Not until we arrive at the mountain of blessing do we see that there remains yet a long time period until we come to the mountain of judgment. You see, the prophets were right. Those two mountains loomed in the future, but what they did not anticipate is the time gap between them. And that is the unexpected twist in the plot line presented in the New Testament. See, in the New Testament, we come to recognize that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and that Jesus truly is the long-expected Christ, the Messiah, the King, the one who crushes the head of the serpent. The twist in the storyline exists in this. Jesus has come in the grace of God to offer the mountain of blessing to the lost and ruined people of Israel and more. He came to offer the mountain of blessing to the lost and ruined people of the whole world, from every tribe and every nation, every people and every tongue. He would establish a kingdom of blessing, and in this manner, he would rule the entire earth. And once this is seen, we can understand the ministry of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon directed to all who wanted the kingdom. His grace to Matthew the tax collector and to Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons is the mountain of blessing. See, I can only imagine the scene of Matthew 17. Jesus cleanses ten men of leprosy and offers them the mountain of blessing. But only one of the ten returns and worships at his feet and wants to enter into the kingdom. 
See, I can only imagine the scene on the cross as one insurrectionist and murderer who deserves only the mountain of judgment finds himself crying out in his death throes, Lord, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And how does Jesus respond? But by offering him the mountain of mercy, today you will be with me in paradise. So in Jesus, there is this peculiar overlap of of two ages. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. The kingdom has come in mercy, but it still awaits the final consummation of all things. The blessing of God has arrived, but the world of evil is allowed to remain for a period of time until the fullness of all those who are chosen by grace are allowed to enter. If judgment had come at the same time of blessing, none would have been saved. But God had always determined that he would allow for a season in which the blessing of God would come, but judgment would be delayed. Jesus put it this way. Matthew 24, verse 14 records him as saying, And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. See, when the mountain of blessing and of grace has been presented to the whole world, then to mix my metaphors just a bit, then we will have crossed a valley, and then we will have also reached the mountain of judgment. In that time, the great king who sits on David's throne will rule forever and ever, and the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That day has now come and yet will come in the future. John, I think what you said today is so profound and really is part of the question of all of our lives. How do we how do we reconcile the fact that the kingdom is here and yet we're waiting for it at the same time? Yeah, I think we also feel that individually in our lives so that all things are now made new when we come into the kingdom. Conversion means that our heart has been changed to love the things of God. But at the same time, I recognize I'm still struggling with the old. You know, I'm still rooted in this world, and and I await the consummation of all things. We also talked about uh, in the break, just uh, you and I, uh, in terms of the death of loved ones who will say, Lord, take me now. Why don't I now have everything that you've promised? That's the overlap of two ages. Thanks so much, John. Well, we have much to look forward to in the days ahead with this series, The Storyline of the Bible, right here on Back to the Bible Canada leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. With so many interruptions in our lives, including opportunity to travel, we want to share that we are now offering registration for our 2022 Israel Experience. This is a bucket list experience like none other an opportunity to travel to the Holy Land, experience so many of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, David's Royal Palace, worship at the Garden Tomb, and sail the Sea of Galilee, all under the teaching of Dr. John Neufeld. So plan on joining us from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, for the Israel Experience, hosted by Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and special musical guests. The Holy Land is a spectacular journey of faith. Registration is limited, so call Back to the Bible Canada at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca slash Israel experience.